if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to start, we won't finish there this morning, but we'll start in Romans chapter 3. So as you're turning there, I just want to tell you of a, of a struggle that the early Christians have had, excuse me, that the early Christians had in the first century that you and I don't particularly have, that we almost have the opposite problem. They had a problem approaching God one way. We have a problem with approaching God, but it's, it's, it's kind of a different problem stemming from the same issue that we're going to address. But the first century Christians, the Jewish, it started out very Jewish, right, and then moved out into the Gentile world. The gospel was first preached to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, and then in Acts chapter 2, just exploded all over the part of the world as people heard the gospel on the day of Pentecost, and then went home and took the gospel with them. But that first, those first Christians, those first followers of Jesus, they were really kind of stuck in this very kind of tense position. Because their history of God's people, and the way that they for generations had approached God, was through the law of Moses. But then Jesus came along and he started to do some different kind of things what they were like they were struggling because in one way Jesus was fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies and all of the promises of the Messiah Jesus was fulfilling all of them yet he was doing it in ways that was to them very confusing one of the reasons why it was very confusing for them is because they had some expectations based upon their understanding of God's promises not necessarily God's promises you understand? You see, see the difference? They had some expectations of God based on their understanding of God's promises, but not necessarily God's promises. It's kind of like what you and I sometimes struggle with when we read God's Word. It's not God's Word that we struggle with necessarily, but it's our understanding of His Word. So you and I, we read the Word, we take away a certain understanding, and then we go and we expect things from God. And then when those things don't come our way, we get kind of sideways with God. And we say, but your word says, and your Bible says, and all that. And God's like, no, that's, that's the way you, that's what you thought it said. When really it didn't say that like, like at all. Oh. So really a proper understanding of God's word is what sets us in the right position to have the right expectations. And then on those right expectations, we can approach God in a healthy manner. But they were stuck in this because they didn't quite understand what Jesus was doing. Jesus was doing all sorts of kind of things that to them were really strange. And in the best of their intentions to approach God as believers in Jesus, because one thing that they were very convinced of was the resurrection, right? The resurrection of Jesus, they were so convinced that they began to follow Jesus based on their understanding of that. But then all of their Jewish history then became kind of in question. Well, really, how do we approach God? Because we've been approaching God through feasts and festivals and, and calendar dates. And we've been focused, based, everything that the law of Moses had said, we've been, we've been doing. And even like some extra stuff stuff <laughs> that our leaders had thought okay we have the law but we also have these extra things and if you follow all of these things you can approach God and that's kind of how they've been doing it and so they were really kind of trapped in this kind of thing between their history and how they thought they should approach God but yet the new as Jesus would say new wineskin right but the the new way and walking in the fulfillment so their question was okay going back to the law of Moses and seeing that the original intent of the law of Moses was to show us our sin. 
Paul talks about that a lot in Romans 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Talks about that the, the law of Moses was supposed to be like a mirror, or Paul calls it a teacher, to show us that really our approach to God is based on faith. But see, they had gotten that wrong, and they thought that their approach to God was by following the law perfectly. And then when Jesus comes along, he fulfills that. Well, see, as they struggled in their Jewishness to kind of say, well, how do we really approach God, and what things did the Messiah, like, finish and complete, and we don't have to do those anymore because all those are fulfilled in Jesus, and they all pointed to him, and now they've led us to that place. And the original intent of the law was to show us that we need a Savior. It's like the rules were put on the, on the board, and we went, oh, no, I, I have never followed these rules perfectly, and God goes, I know. In fact, before the rules were even in place, humanity was breaking rules. Humanity was breaking rules that it didn't even know existed. And because God is holy, he was like, um, y'all need to know kind of the rules around here, because you keep breaking them, and you don't even know them. So here are the rules. Oh, oh no. I need a savior. And so now we, as we travel 2,000 years plus into the future, and we find ourselves right here and they're thinking of our approach to God. Well, we've kind of gotten so far, like, used to the law being fulfilled. What we do now with the law is that we take the law of Moses, and instead of being confused by it, we just dismiss it. To whereas they didn't know what to do with it anymore, and how do we move in and out of this, we just kind of dismiss it. And we approach God, we're so used to approaching God on faith and approaching God by his grace that we kind of take that for granted. That we kind of look at the rules or the the law and we go, eh, no one's perfect. Here I come, Jesus. Here I come, God. And so it's kind of like the opposite. Like they were way too tied up and where God would tell them, would you take a breath? and just come to me? Would you stop worrying about all of this stuff and just come by faith and by grace? That's what he would have told the first century. Now, if we get here, they'd be like, God would say, and you could disagree with me, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like God would say, well, y'all are kind of rude. And you don't really care much about my commands like at all. It's just like you make up your own rules and then come to me and expect me to bless you. And I think God would say to our culture today, man, I've given you my my standards, but then you break the standards, reap the consequences, and blame me for the consequences. So a lot of times when we're approaching God, it's how dare you, God, let this happen? And how, if you are a loving God, we approach God with this accusatory, with this disrespectful, with this you must accept me kind of, and we've kind of turned the thing on its ear. And when I started looking at this and looking at it a little bit closer, I started to wonder, well, how really are we supposed to approach you? How are we really supposed to do this? And I think where I'm landing, and I'm in process like everyone else trying to figure this out, where I'm landing and where I think the confusion lies is in the difference between the ceremonial law and the moral law of God. The ceremonial law 
all that stuff, all the dietary stuff, and don't put salt in this, and have yeast in that, and don't have yeast in that, and put this over here, and eat that, and all this. Whoo! All that stuff? Ceremonial. Jesus fulfilled all that. We don't need to do all that anymore. Gentiles were never expected to do that. Read Acts chapter 15. However, though the ceremonial law has been done away with, read Galatians and Colossians and other books in the New Testament, the moral law of God still stands. So when the Bible says, thou shalt not murder, that's a moral law. (laughs) When the Bible says in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, that's a moral law. So the ceremonial is gone. Jesus fulfilled that, and the Jews are like, well, we don't have to do that stuff anymore. And in fact, if we follow Jesus, they're not going to let us into the tabernacle, and they're not going to let us into the temple anyway, and we're not going to be able to do that. Oh, and by the way, A.D. 70, their temple was destroyed, and they can't do that anymore either. And so as of A.D. 70, the whole thing is gone. And they kind of try to do it, but they really can't do it. But the moral law still stands. And the requirement of faith still stands. And God has always been a just and holy God. So I want to talk to you this morning about this notion that justified people can provide justice in their relational worlds. Hmm. Justified people can provide justice in their relational worlds. Now, when I talk about justified people, this is our approach to God, that we come to him unjustified, right? We come to him as sinners. We come to him as those that have broken the rule. We've broken the moral codes. We we come to him like this. And Paul points out that before the law was even in place, God accounted righteousness to, to Abraham based on his faith. So it was always faith. Then came the law. Now the ceremonial law is gone. The moral law continues, but it's still always faith. So we approach God like Abraham did. We approach God by faith, understanding that the ceremonial law, that's fulfilled in Jesus, but I'm coming to the, now, God, on the, moral, on, on the basis of the moral law and my faith that I've broken the moral law of God and that Jesus is my payment for that and I can come to God if I come to him humbly and faithfully. I can come to him and approach him and he will justify me. He will give me justice. He will make me legally right with him. He'll put me in legal right standing with him as though I didn't break any of the laws because he gave me the law. He gave us the law. We looked at the moral law, dismissing now the ceremonial law. We looked at the moral law and we go, oh, I'm guilty. Uh Uh-oh, how am I supposed to approach God as guilty? The answer's in the question. How do I approach God as guilty? Yes. You're not answering my question, Pastor. How do I approach God as guilty? Right. How do I approach God as guilty? Oh, you, you know. You approach him as guilty. And then he provides the justice. He provides the justice. 
Now, this is a bigger issue than what I can explain in, a, in, a, in, a, in one sermon. But through himself and becoming a man and dying our death, he now has provided justice. Because our brokenness, our sin, was so, and, and sin itself, this is kind of one thing that we've lost kind of in the church today. I think the seriousness of sin, the ugliness of sin, sin is now tolerated, celebrated, demanded, right? We've gone through that in our last series. But, but sin is such an ugly, horrible, destructive thing that in order to get rid of it, death is required. Because that's how bad sin is. That's not how harsh God is. That's how bad sin is. And that's why these, these doctrines of hell and these doctrines of, of punishment, that's why they're so ugly and so detestable to the fact that I don't even like to talk about hell. Jesus talked about it, so I have to talk about it. I don't like to talk about it. It's like horrible. It, it's something that I don't even really know what it is. But as I read the Bible, it's an existence that is so horrible that we have problems describing it. So Jesus described it something like a garbage dump. Jesus described it as this, like this lake of fire. Not that it really is a lake of fire, not that it really is a dump, but it's something like that. It's so horrible that we really don't have words to describe it, so we kind of say it's like this. It's like, it's so bad that you have to make up a new category of words. It's like, God is so holy that we really, that our words don't even justify that, right? Like, pure. I don't know, anything we do to describe God, like, falls short of the magnificent of it, and it leaves us to a place where we could just worship him and enjoy him and go, God, you are so amazing and so pure and holy, I really can't get my mind around that, around that so I just worship you, and I appreciate that, and I love you, and I, I want to obey you, even though I can't quite figure you out, you know, and some things are like that in life. Some things are so beautiful, you're process them it's hard to process like when you stand at the Grand Canyon you're like is that like real is that like so amazing right and like when my wife came down the aisle to marry me I thought this is like not real right you guys catch that oh, thanks yeah <laughs> but yeah but hell is like the same way and so when we talk, talk about justice it's like man it's like God was justified in what he did because of our sin, but yet now he's just going to provide that for you. He's just going to provide that, and we approach him as guilty, and then he accepts us as justified. So then once God gives that to us, notice how we become justified. Being justified is a, is a gift. It's been extended to you. You, you didn't have to earn it. <laughs> you didn't have to go convince God to give it to you. You didn't need to demand it. You didn't need to grab after it. God extended it to us. He just said, as you approach me guilty, I'm going to justify you. I'm going to give that, I'm going to extend that out as, as a gift of my grace to you. And then you, full well of your shortcomings and of all of your misdoings, you're like, but I'm guilty. And he says, but I know. I understand that. And because you admit that and put your trust in me, I now justify you because I've done the work. It's a gift of grace. Here you go. And when you really appreciate that, you don't say, oh good, then I'll just keep doing 
my sinful things and you keep extending justice to me and this is going to be our relationship. I'm just going to be a horrible wreck for the rest of my life and you're just going to ex- keep extending. No, you don't do that, do you? When you recognize your own sin and you say, I'm guilty and God says, I justify you, you're like, you're one of what? I'm going to justify you. See, but well, that prompts in you then a love, doesn't it? And that prompts in you a, I really want to do better. And I really, really want to grow. And I really want to become more like you. And he said, that's great. Let's go on that journey together. And whenever you feel guilty, come to me as guilty. I'll justify you. And we'll continue to move forward. And we'll continue to get better. And we'll continue to grow. It's the sanctification process. It's his work of the Holy Spirit in your life helping you to continue to grow. We come to this text this morning. And the first thing that we see in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26, is that we are justified in God's sight through our faith in Jesus. Let's read the text. I've kind of preached backwards today. I told you what it meant. Now I'll go show you why I just said what I said. I should have done that the other way around. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Big verse. (laughs) For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forth as a propitiation, fancy word for payment, by his blood to be received by faith. This, is, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It is now to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now all that I just said previous to reading that text, now you see it in God's word. Hmm. The piece that I'll mention real quick before going on to the next is this. I want you to pay a little bit more attention to this part in verse 25 that says this was to show God's righteousness what was to show the death and resurrection of Jesus the offering of Jesus the ugliness of that and when you you take the cross scene the horribleness to where they needed to create a new word the excruciating pain that level of pain was not known before the Roman crucifixion but because they crucified people, they're like, this is a whole nother level. This is like when you're at the doctor and those, those smiley faces, one through ten, and they ask you, where are you? And you say ten, and they're like, here, we need to give you some more pain medication because you're out of ten. This is like, uh, we've passed ten. We're like 11, 12, 15 somewhere now. We need, another, we need another little face. I don't know what face you would put up there, but you need some kind of face. And we're going to call this excruciating pain. I mean, the type of pain you would be in if you were being crucified. That and the ugliness of that, when we compare that and we look, well, how could a God do that 
to bring us back to himself. That's how ugly sin is. God is saying, if you think that scene is detestable, that's what I see when I see the sinfulness of mankind. Wow. So if I'm standing there with God looking at the cross scene and I say, woof, God, you're brutal. He would look at me and go, you're filthy. Yeah. <laughs> if I looked and said, hey, God, that's how mean you are. No, Paul, that, that's how bad sin is. And if you're still not convinced that sin is really bad, take everything that you want to complain about today, because I want to complain about a lot of things. Take everything that you think is wrong with the world today, Every bit of it is because somewhere, somehow, man has broken God's laws. All of the thing going on with Roe v. Wade and all of that, the ugliness of it, no matter what you believe about that, the ugliness of it is the ugliness of sin. The ugliness of sin. And by and large, it is my belief that abortion, the ugliness of that, exists because people want to do whatever they want to do and have not have any repercussions or responsibility. They just want to have sex with anybody that they want to. And by the way, that's usually why men want abortion to be legal is because they want to be able to have sex with women and not have held responsible for it. Now, well, you feel, I know there's a lot of Christians that say, I don't believe in abortion, but I believe it should, I don't believe that, I'm not in that argument with you. You go settle that with God. But when you look at the ugliness of it, that's the ugliness of sin. When you look at the ugliness of war, the ugliness of our homeless situation and of mental illness and of drug addiction, when you look at the ugliness of it, God wants you to look at the cross scene and look at that. And he says, because of that's so ugly, this is where we're at. And so he looked over it. Look at what he says, because of his divine forbearance. So all through the Old Testament, God was putting up with this stuff. I know. I know. That's why David had hundreds of wives and Solomon had hundreds. God's like, I know. That's terrible. I'm uh, All that stuff in the old testament where you're going god seriously let that happen why didn't he like do something about that forbearance 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 jesus and now we put our trust in jesus and we are justified that way a second kind of point that i want to draw you to before taking you to a challenge is this though we are not justified by our works our justification becomes a pathway for good works that are profitable for all people. So because I showed up to God and I said, hey, I'm guilty. <laughs> I look at my life. I look at your commands. I'm guilty. I put my trust in Jesus. He then justifies me by the work of Jesus. I then look and go, wow, now I'm empowered. My guilt has been taken away. I now stand justified before God. I'm free. I don't have to go around trying to become justified. I don't need to make excuse for my sin. I don't need to try to worry about that. Me and Jesus are now moving on this pathway that he's justified me and he's helping me grow. I'm good. 
My relationship with God is solid. We're okay. We now can go good, do good for other people. We can serve now. We're good. You're okay. You and God are tight. You're good. Now let's go start extending that to other people. Because God has justified you and extended that to you, you now, and me, we can go do what God does. And we can go extend justice and grace and mercy to those around us. You don't need to fight for your rights anymore. Do you realize that? You don't. You and God are good. You're right there with God. He is meeting all your needs. He's taking care of you. He's moving you through life. He's shaping and molding you. He's moving you forward. Your fight is over. You are now free and empowered by God to go do these things for other people. Let's take a look and turn to your Bibles to the book of Titus, a little tiny book. If you're getting familiar with your Bible, in the back of the book, there's a section of books that begin with T. So if you find Timothy's, you're kind of close because all the T's are together, and you'll find Titus, and within Titus chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11, starting with verses 1 and 2, where we discover this. Paul writing to Titus, kind of like Paul writing to Timothy, Titus is also a young pastor, Paul's writing to him, and he's talking to him about how to lead his church, and he says this to Titus, he said, remind them, so hey pastor, remind your people, so I'm just reminding you, to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. (laughs) Ah, but there's so much you don't understand. He does. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show respect and courtesy towards all people. Remind them, do this, because you and God are fine. You showed up onto the scene. You said, I'm guilty. He extended grace. He extended mercy. You put your trust in him. He justified you. You're fine. God is going to meet your needs. He's going to take care of you. He's going to move you through life, shaping and molding you into the image of his son, Jesus. You are free to go about and do good for those around you. You don't need to complain. You don't need to quarrel and argue. You don't need to post inflammatory memes. You don't need to make fun of people for falling off their bike. And when Biden fell off his bike, I had a lot of compassion for the man because that can happen to anybody, whether you're 10, 15, 20, in the best shape of the world. Trust me, it's called an SPD moment because that's the type of pedals. Your foot gets stuck in there, you're falling over. Yes, I've fallen over, and yes, I will again. And it's embarrassing when you're standing still and fall over. But do you see how, how far we've come? If we agree or disagree with the man's policy, we just make fun of him for falling off a bike, and all of a sudden, that's news. A man falling off a bike is news. Huh. That's embarrassing. And Christians should not be participating in that. You can laugh at me when I fall off my bike, because that's actually funny. Me and Ian are out riding. I crash. You laugh. It's what we do. After you make sure I'm all right, right, Phil? So you just, are you okay? Yes. Man, that was awesome. And then start laughing. You have my permission because I will laugh at you. But that's not had nothing to do with anything else, right? Whether or not you think I'm a decent pastor or not has nothing to do with whether or not I fall off my bike. My falling off my bike has nothing to do with the way I preach, teach, or guide you and guide this church. That's embarrassing. 
But anyway, back to this. I'm reminding you. And then we step into verses 3 through 7, where it says, For we ourselves, and this is why we're not going to go around and do that to people, right? For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray. We were slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But then the goodness of God, our Savior, appeared. So we used to be involved in all that. But then we saw the standard of God. And we went, uh-oh, I'm guilty. And he goes, I know. Put your faith in Jesus. Stop making fun of people like that. Stop being cantankerous and rude and impolite. I'm guilty of all of it. I know you are. <laughs> and it's ugly. Put your faith in me. Trust me. Remember to treat all, everybody with good because you can. It doesn't matter if you agree with them or disagree with them. You can be polite. You can be generous. You can be kind. You can extend grace. You can extend mercy. Why? Because you're fine. You and God are, he's going to meet your needs. He's going to take care of you. I know. For we ourselves were once that way. But then God our Savior appeared. And he saved us, not because of the works that we had done by, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's pretty huge, isn't it? That he would do that for us. Hmm. So how careful are you, and how careful am I being? As I know that all my needs are met in Jesus, and me and God are justified, I'm fine, I'm good to go, I'm free now to serve, right? I'm free to serve, free to give, free to extend grace, free to extend mercy, free to be polite, free to be generous. So how much am I paying attention? Now, no, if you're like me, I need to pay close attention, <laughs> because one of my biggest problems is I find inappropriate things funny. I do. I, I find inappropriate things funny. And I need to be very careful of that. Right? And then I can get irritated and rude real fast. I could speak out of anger. I'm like pretty chill. Like, I just stay calm, calm, calm. And then I get to this kind of point. And then I kind of explode a little bit and get like super frustrated. <laughs> and it's like... <laughs> And it's like, I thought he was good. He didn't like show the natural progression of getting mad. He was calm and then like the world ended. I need to be careful. And you need to be careful. We need to pay attention to what we're doing very, very closely. And then how devoted am I? Am I devoted to good works? Am I devoted to serving? Am I devoted, am I devoted from operating out of my place of being justified between me and God? I hope so. So those are some questions in regards to that. And then in verse 8, he says this, This saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. He said, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for the unprofitable, they are unprofitable and they're worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, ha knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. <laughs> those, those, those are, those are kind of crazy words, aren't they? 
But then I started thinking about that. I started thinking about this context of justice and the fact that we're being called to go out and do good things for all people because we're justified. And so I started looking into this justification a little bit. And I thought, what did they mean in the New Testament, in the first century, how did they understand justice? Because justice is a big thing. It's a slippery thing today, right? It's like, ah, <laughs> it's kind of a hard thing to nail down. So in the first century, what did, they say, what did they mean by justice? As the church started to move out into the Gentile world and then the Roman world, they began to take on a lot of the Roman philosophies and the Roman way of understanding things. Okay? And eventually, the center of Christianity became Rome. Okay? So by the time Jesus showed up on the scene, their understanding in the Gentile world was largely shaped by Roman philosophy. And so when Jesus shows up and Paul shows up, and Paul had a dual citizenship of being both Jew and Roman, and when he showed up and they started talking about justice, what they heard, what they heard and how they understood that and how they were trying to process their approach to God in this justice kind of thing was based on the teachings of Aristotle, who believed that justice was a virtue that you held within yourself and began to extend that to other people. And that's how we created a just society. We created a just society by you and I joining together and agreeing to extend justice to one another and fairness and equity and those things. It was something that me as a virtuous person would then extend to you and you as a reasonable person would extend to me and together we would create a society where justice was being available and extended and given to other people. Now that notion, because it was so steeped in that world and then the Christian world and that kind of came together, that thought of justice being a virtue to be extended then continued on. Continued on as the prevalent way to understand justice even into the 13th century when we looked at that very famous Italian priest Thomas Aquinas, who then taught that justice was the same thing that Aristotle believed and that believed as Christians that we should be extending justice. We of all people, we that have been freely justified by God, we didn't have to earn our just standing. We didn't need to fight for our just standing. We received it as a grace-filled gift from God. So we as all people should be living out this virtue of justice and extending it. And because this priest and his teaching were effective by the time we get to the American Christianity and the lives of the Puritans were taking on this same understanding of justice. People like William Perkins and Richard Baxter. And if you haven't read the writings of the Puritans, you might want to start. There's some wonderful, wonderful things to be found in their writings. They too taught that justice was a virtue to be extended to people and is what largely what Paul meant when he was talking in Titus about doing good for all people. Hmm. So then the challenge then becomes for us this, that you and I would mirror God's path of justification in our relationships to others. As God said, hey, uh, you're guilty. And then we admit that guilt. And then he extends grace to us and justifies us as a virtue 
what if our relationship started to look like that? What if you and I started to approach each other admitting where we are guilty instead of trying to blame other people? What would happen if every person, just like in this room or listening online, what if you in your own home, in your relationships, every single time you did something wrong and the Holy Spirit prompted you and convicted you that you did something wrong, that you immediately asked for forgiveness and you confess your guilt to one another, you weren't a right fighter, you weren't just being stubborn, you weren't playing the blame game, you just simply owned your peace in it and you told your partner and you told your family and your co-workers and your church people, you said, I'm guilty of that, would you please forgive me? See, if we followed that pattern of looking at God's moral standard and going, huh, God's moral standard, I know the ceremonial thing and we can have bread with yeast in it, thank you Jesus, and we can have all that kind of stuff. God doesn't hate shrimp. Pastor joke, sorry. So you can do all that, but God's moral standard, if we would look at that and just admit our guilt and then extend grace, what would our relationships look like? So if we accepted guilt, extended grace, and then we're free to do good for everyone around us. If that was the pattern, what would change in our relational world? And as a church, as the people justified by our faith in Jesus, may we return the virtue of justice. May we extend that to other people. I know they don't deserve it. I know I didn't when I came to God and I said, I'm guilty. And he's like, yeah, but I'm going to extend this out to you. So no matter what your political persuasion is, no matter what you think about what's going on in our world, somehow, some way, by fault of people on both sides of things, justice is now something that is trying to be grabbed at. Interesting, isn't it? You've seen the signs. You've seen the rallies. No justice, no peace. If my body's not safe, neither is your abortion clinic. On both sides. Both, it's everywhere. It's just a matter of who particularly is liking what's going on. Because if Roe versus Wade was kept in place by our Supreme Court, some lunatic would have went and set a Planned Parenthood on fire. Someone would have done it. I know someone would have done it. But this time, it went their way, and so someone went and set the other place on fire. So the loser always sets the winner's place on fire. The one that loses a legal battle will always blame the other one of something horrible. It doesn't matter. Look at the last few election cycles. The loser always blames someone else or tries to discredit the one that won somehow, some way. For the last four, six, almost six years, people have been saying, that's not my president. Doesn't matter who it was. Trump got elected. That's not my president. Oh, yeah, he is. It was. Biden's not my president. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. And it's time for the church to be the church and extend grace and extend justice 
because somehow we've landed in a world where justice is so rare that it's now being clawed at because we don't have it. Because both sides, neither side is extending it to the other. So justice isn't being given. And I take, go back to my same analogy, and I'll finish with this. Whenever any group of people, I usually do this with marital counseling, premarital counseling. I take the husband and the wife, and I say if the husband chooses to give to the wife and the wife chooses to give to the husband, they're both going to receive, and there'll be unity and togetherness in the marriage. But if the husband shows up and said, I'm going to take from the wife, and the wife shows up and said, I'm going to take from the husband, you have isolation and separation, and you have a failed marriage. Same within our country. If you want to use the colors red and blue, fine. If you have red people giving to blue people and blue people giving to red people, we're going to come back together. But if we're trying to grab things from each other and blame from each other, we're going to get exactly what we have. We are living in a country that is getting exactly what it's made for itself. And until we understand the biblical principles and the church stops this nonsense of throwing out the whole law. I understand the ceremonial piece, but we have to reconnect with the moral law of God. And we have to look at how we've approached God and then how he has accepted us and extend that out to the same people to the same extent. Mm -hmm.